It's Friday, December 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Many are expecting the metaverse to be the next phase of the internet, where our real lives increasingly mesh with our digital lives, and companies are taking notice. Investors are already spending millions to buy up virtual real estate, and just like in real life, location matters. While the internet is infinite, virtual plots of land are not, and companies are buying up what they can in online worlds like Decentraland, hoping to develop those areas into shopping centers and more. Deborah Carmen, contributor to the New York Times, joins us for this new virtual land boom. Next, there's a secret unit within the Custom and Border Protection's National Targeting Center called the Counter Network Division. This division has very few rules and used various databases at its disposal to investigate Americans. This division still operates today and would gain access to the personal information of journalists, government officials, congressional members, and their staff. Jana Winter, investigative correspondent at Yahoo News, joins us to talk about Operation Whistlepig and the investigation in a journalist, Ali Watkins. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The people who have more imagination, who are capable of actually building, mm-hmm. you can put a, a building, a casino, a store on your parcel. You can generate revenue. You can charge rent. You can sell space for advertising. You can build a museum and charge admission. There's really no end to the things you can do. Joining us now is Deborah Kamen, contributor to The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Deborah. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about real estate, more specifically virtual real estate in the metaverse right now. There's been all sorts of companies that are uh, buying up these virtual lands for millions of dollars, and they see this as you know part of what the metaverse could eventually be. Obviously, they're banking on getting in early so they can develop this virtual land, make money off of it. It's all very uh, interesting to see what the future of our online activities could be. So, Deborah, tell us a little bit about this. As I mentioned, there's millions of dollars going into buying up this virtual land already. There is definitely millions of dollars going in. And the idea is that even months from now, not even years from now, these millions of dollars are going to see like real small change. A lot of these investors are saying it's very much like as if you showed up in Manhattan 150 years ago and somebody offered you a piece of land in Soho. You would be a fool not to buy it because if you don't buy it right now, the value of it is going to skyrocket before you can even snap your fingers. The idea is that this is land that's extremely valuable and it's only going to get more valuable by the second. So one of the big questions I had with this, obviously the internet we know is pretty infinite. It just goes on and on. So with these virtual worlds, they could continue to be built upon, expanded upon. But in these certain areas where people are buying right now, uh, there's a couple of uh, platforms, Decentraland, Sandbox is another one. It's not actually infinite. There's only a finite amount of parcels, I guess you can call them, that they are selling. So how does that part of it work? Right. I mean, you nailed it. One of the things about understanding this concept of land in the metaverse is you have to understand it's both limitless, but also very much limited because it's how much these lands have been designed and they've already been divided into parcels. So there's this idea of location, 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 which applies just as much to digital real estate as it does to real estate in the real world. So if you have these virtual worlds, you have areas that have already started to be developed. You have these downtown cores and there's only so much of them. And the ones that are starting to be built up for fashion or for gaming or for commerce are already more valuable. So that's where the value is skyrocketing the fastest. And that's where people are trying to get in with as much 
passion as they can right now and as much money as they can. Okay, so let's talk about some of the sales. Uh, for your article, you focused on a couple of the sales that were happening in uh, Decentraland. Before we did the story, I went onto the website to try to check it out, and you can make an avatar. It's a little cartoony looking, but the little city area, you know, you can go and actually do some shopping, different things like that. And, and all of this stuff is going to keep expanding, right? They're going to keep building it out. But tell us a little bit about Decentraland and then some of the big sales we saw coming up. So there's this company, Tokens.com, and they recently purchased a tower. And Well, they didn't purchase. They actually, quote-unquote, broke ground, which really just means they started coding a tower in this area in Decentraland, which is what they hope is going to be their fashion district. Right now, if you think of the real world, if you think of a field that someone has decided they're going to build a town in, that's kind of what these areas look like. And as people are buying up digital real estate, these places are getting built up. So they have this vision that this fashion district eventually is going to have virtual headquarters where people are going to trade NFT versions of brands like Gucci and Burberry and all the other major fashion brands. And in their tower, they're hoping they're going to have a fashion mall where people will come shop and they hope they will stage fashion shows there. And as a result, they will be able to make a lot of money. But rather than it have dollars of commerce, it will be on the blockchain. It will just be a virtual version of everything we really know and understand right now in the real world. And that tower I was sold for about a million dollars. And they had an even larger acquisition a few weeks ago after that for $2.5 million, which at the time was a record. And cryptocurrency is going to be a huge part of this. Obviously, you know, NFTs and crypto are kind of going hand in hand in a lot of ways. But let's say for Decentraland, right, they have their own currency on that platform. It's called MANA. But it's all tied into the cryptocurrency thing. That's why it's becoming such this, you know, you hear so many stories about crypto. You're hearing so many stories about NFTs. This is kind of where everything is eventually going to culminate. So crypto is going to be a, a huge part of this. Yeah, so crypto is definitely going to be a huge part of it. And all of the transactions that are happening in the metaverse are happening on the blockchain. What is a little bit tricky is every different virtual world that you go into has its own currency. So it's not like you have one type of cryptocurrency that you can go back and forth in between. It's its own type from metaverse to metaverse, but they're all pretty interchangeable. Yeah, the interesting thing is going to see what happens as more and more companies get into all of this. Obviously, we know Facebook changed their parent company name to reflect the metaverse, things like that. Once they come on board, once all these other companies really start piling onto this, it's going to be interesting to see if people all go to one area to Decentraland or Sandbox or where everybody lands is going to be kind of interesting. But we're already seeing stuff happening there. You mentioned Justin Bieber concert that happened. This is happening in other places like Fortnite and Roblox and things like that. So very soon, very quickly, this does seem like it'll be the future. I think it already is the future. And the other big piece of this is that we all have just gone through a pandemic where we've all been stuck at home and living our lives online for 18 months, if not longer. And this is really, if it hadn't already started to happen before, we've now had this catalyst that's pushed us into it already. So we may not realize that we're already in this world and living it, but we really already are. When we look back in the future, we'll realize that it was already happening and the wheels were already spinning in motion. Deborah Kamen, contributor to the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Take care. The only person that got back to us from any government agency, and believe me, we reached out to pretty much every single one on the planet, uh, was DHS OIG. So 
I don't know. I think a lot of people have a lot of explaining to do. And if you can sense my frustration, I'm not really trying to hide it. Joining us now is Jonna Winter, investigative correspondent at Yahoo News. Thanks for joining us, Jonna. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about an interesting article you wrote about a secretive customs and border patrol unit that has very little rules that uh, investigates Americans. We're talking about the group is called the Counter Network Division, and this is part of the Customs and Border Patrol National Targeting Center. So it's all kind of a department within a department type thing. But they were rolled up into investigating a journalist, uh, Ali Watkins, and it's a pretty incredible story. You had a chance to speak to the man who was at the center of the Counter Network Division and who was doing a lot of this investigating. Jana, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing with the story about Operation Whistlepig? Essentially, we found, um, we got a hold of the Department of uh, Homeland Security Inspector General report into uh, Jeffrey Rambo, whose name has popped up in the press in the past in connection to his alleged interrogation of Ali Watkins, a journalist now at the New York Times. And based on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and literally just a bajillion pages of the OIG investigation, um, we have found that there is this counter network division, as you said, that works out of the targeting center and run by Customs and Border Protection that has little, if any, rules and certainly no oversight and regularly just investigates journalists, NGO workers, members of Congress government officials from other agencies, all U.S. citizens located in the confines of the United States, and none of them suspected of any crime. Yeah, so... And this is still done to this day, I just want to say this. This particular operation, sorry to interrupt, was launched under the Trump administration, ostensibly uh, started due to a White House tasking related to forced labor, cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and if you think that's a crazy convoluted connection, you are correct, and then led to this widespread, just all resources, all databases, probe of pretty much anyone that this group, all they needed was a, someone thinking, oh, hey, we may want to talk to them, and then there we are. The same people are running this division right now, despite criminal referrals for prosecution, and this is being continued under the Biden administration. So that's exactly where the story kind of started, right? So they wanted Jeffrey Rambo to look into forced labor things. They basically said, you know, identify people that you could possibly talk to with regards to this issue, whether they're journalists, staffer, congressional staffers, whoever it is. But they said the, the line from above was vet everybody who you're going to be talking to. But what did they have at their disposal? All of these databases. Uh, everything. Ter- yeah, Literally ter- everything. <laughs> and, and, and that's what they would do. They'd run the names, you know, identify somebody. Boom, let's run their name through every single different type of database. And this is kind of obviously where it gets very intrusive. So how did uh, Jeffrey Rambo land on Ali Watkins? Well, first, I want to say that, and I'm not defending what Jeffrey Rambo did, but I will say it was authorized, approved, ordered, and rewarded internally within CBT. So this is not, you know, a rogue guy going off the grid being like, hey, I'm going to look up journalists. This was what his boss, who is still there, Dan White, despite, again, being referred for multiple counts of criminal prosecution, still running the division, still no procedures, and DHS will not give an explanation, and I really feel like they should. To your point, all the division's assignments were very high level, and they came from the Customs and Border Patrol Commissioner, Secretary of Homeland Security, or the White House. So they were... Uh, all the orders were coming from the highest levels possible. 
Right. That's a good point to make. Um, this isn't like some random dude at the border somewhere was like, hey, can you look up something? This is highest levels possible. And those highest levels possible were not political appointees. These were not Trump people. These other than the White House, obviously, but the people in place in the chain of command at the targeting center at CBB are all still there. So I think your initial question was, how did they get on to Ali Watkins? Yeah. So initially they thought to okay, you know, as you said, uh, let me contact people who would potentially have information on forced labor. So this was to include Martha Mendoza, who has multiple Pulitzers, who's like a real famous, well-known, like just awesome reporter at the Associated Press. She's someone who you could see how what they'd want to reach out to her. Okay. But there was this other level of, we want to contact national security reporters who have never reported on forced labor. Ali Watkins told uh, investigators later, like, I don't understand why I had anything to do with forced labor. And she's correct, because they also wanted to push out stories that were not entirely or at all accurate that would overstate U.S. law enforcement capabilities and sort of trick companies like Apple who are believed to be using this forced child labor, basically cobalt mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo to make things like iPhones and other stuff in China. So he puts, Jeff Rambo puts together, he's put appointed lead on this project. He comes up with this plan. Ali Watkins is on there. He starts doing database checks of Martha Mendoza. He emails her. She says, I'm in Thailand. He looks, oh, she's in Thailand. That seems right. He runs Ali Watkins through the same databases. He looks at her international travel and sees what he sort of takes as an aha moment that she has been going to Gitmo. And then the two trips sort of sandwiched around that were her flying somewhere with a mysterious older man who was more than 30 years older than her. So Jeff Rambo is like, who is this guy? This guy turns out to be James Wolfe, who is then director of security for the Senate Intelligence Committee. And this kicks off this whole leak investigation inside CBP, but it also leads to Jeff Rambo, under an alias, going to meet this reporter, Allie Watkins, and grilling her about her sources and her relationship and her travel and all sorts of other things that a normal person would not have access to relating to her, which obviously spooked her. At that bar where he was kind of interrogating her about all this stuff with all these details that he learned from this kind of extreme vetting that he had all his hands on, he was drinking whistle pig old fashions at the time. That's why the the operation into this already uh, became known as the Operation Whistle Pig. Uh, Just an interesting little side. I always love you know, knowing how these operations get their names. But in it, you know, after he was looking in this, he, he kind of connected Watkins to James Wolf. I don't know if it was just in his head or how, how it really kind of fleshed out, but it started becoming more of a leak investigation. He put it together saying, they're probably have some relationship. He's head of security here. He's probably leaking information to her as a journalist. And it kind of morphed into this bigger thing. Right. I think it also morphed into this bigger thing a little bit earlier than, um, I don't know, that than earlier reporting about him had, had suggested. Because he emails um, an FBI contact of his who was at the time then doing counterterror stuff at the FBI um, headquarters and says, before he goes to meet with Ali Watkins, he says, oh, I think I have something in your swim lane. And that's that is a reference to his what he what he later Rambo later told investigators you know, that he went to the bar to meet Ali Watkins to determine if she was receiving classified information from James Wolfe. Now, you would think that is not the purview of their work, that that does not have anything to do with forced labor. And all of these things on its face seem, you know, totally not connected. 
But that's what you get when you have a division that has no rules. You get people who really thought that for better or worse and largely worse in this case, it it obviously seems, um, you know, we're doing the right thing, that they were doing everything that their boss told them to do, everything within their authorities, everything was authorized. I mean, this was, and that's the problem with this, right? Because this is what you get for creating, I mean, it's by design. Um, the people, other people who work at counter network division just straight up told, uh, DHS OIG investigators, including Rambo's boss, who said, you know, there are no guidelines. There are no protocols. We make the guidelines. We are the protocols. Uh, we're pushing the limits here. I mean, that's why it was created. So it's a failure of just common sense. Um, but certainly is also indictment of the oversight process and also frankly, um, in terms of the response or lack of response, we've gotten or the Associated Press has gotten or the Times has gotten because another one of their reporters was also caught up in this. And I've been hearing on the side from other reporters at different agencies who think that they have been ensnared as well. Um, I, I think the lack of response from everyone, from the FBI to DOJ to the White House, um, to DHS to CDP giving a kind of crappy response that had nothing to do with the questions that we asked. Um, the only person that got back to us from any government agency, and believe me, we reached out to pretty much every single one on the planet, uh, was DHS OIG. So I don't know. I think a lot of people have a lot of explaining to do. And if right. you can sense my frustration, I'm not totally. really trying to hide it. Um, and yeah. for Jeffrey Rambo, for himself, right, he went through this. They kind of gave him those, that no rules action, just do whatever you need to do. You know, there was a payoff, right? James Wolfe was indicted not for leaking any classified information, but for lying to the FBI about his relationship with reporters, a bunch of stuff. So he's kind of vindicated in that. As you mentioned, internally, he was praised for some of that work that he was doing. But Yeah, you know, he got these crazy awards, but he's been the fall guy for the public, exactly. and I'm not sure that's fair. Yeah, he signed up these non-disclosure agreements, for so for a while he couldn't tell his side of stories uh, of the story. But he did speak to you guys, obviously, for all of this. And, uh, you know, he, he feels like he was thrown under the bus. He still works for CBP, but in, uh, in another thing, and he, he owns a coffee shop down in San Diego. You know, he just feels like he's been kind of given the shorthand with all of it. I think he has, which doesn't really excuse, per se, what, what he's been up to or what he was doing at CND. But he certainly, I mean, there's no way that he was a rogue agent. I mean, you could see these people were smart enough to, you know, put it in an email. You're like, what did you not put in email? Um, because they, they ordered all these emails were uncovered in part of the Inspector General report that I obtained. So, I mean, you can see from the very get-go, his boss was in the loop. He, Jeffrey Rambo is someone who likes to send a lot of emails. because I've had to pour through all of these emails that were included in the report. And so do his bosses. His bosses like to confirm everything over email as well. And it's back and forth for months and months. Right. And it's like, you know, they, he totally got thrown under the bus because it's like he was ready to package this up and say, you know, FBI, this is your lane. Whether he got there appropriately in our eyes, appropriately not being, you know, legally because he was legally, he was fine. But his boss says, you know what, actually, before you send all that information off to the FBI, we'd like to make sure that uh, Ali Watkins and these other reporters don't have sources at DHS. And, like, that's not okay. Like, they ran these reporters, like, contact info through internal DHS employee databases that have no other purpose to be run against, except for if you are looking to match someone's cell phone up with their contact. Jonna Winter, investigative correspondent at Yahoo News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.